Chapter 19, The Forgiveness of Sins The forgiveness of sins is an article of the Apostles' Creed, and it appears in the Nicene Creed in relation to baptism. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. The proclamation of the remission of sins is basic to the gospel. John the Baptist alerted all Israel to the coming Messiah, the Savior from sin, by his declaration of this doctrine in relation to baptism. Baptism, as the sign of the new covenant, replaces circumcision, heralded the new age even as forgiveness of sins characterized the new life. Matthew 3, 2, 6, Mark 1, 4, Luke 3, 3 through 6. Where Jesus Christ is denied, the forgiveness of sins is of course denied. As Ignatius said, he who disbelieves the gospel disbelieves everything along with it. From the beginning of scripture to the end, one doctrine of forgiveness, justification, sanctification, and communion with God is taught. This one doctrine was set forth typically in the Old Testament ordinances and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness in the world of humanism has become an emotional and personal act. In the Bible, it is a judicial and legal act. It means that a guilty man's legal indictment or charges have been dropped because satisfaction has been charges deferred for the time rendered, or, for some cases, charges deferred for the time being. Luke 23:24. Because forgiveness is a judicial term, it makes all the more emphatic the fact that forgiveness is entirely of God's grace through Jesus Christ because atonement has been made by Jesus Christ and by him alone. The person of the believer is accepted as righteous, not because of anything he has done, but because of what Christ has done. The obedience and the satisfaction of Christ are the grounds of man's forgiveness. Satisfaction has been rendered by Christ as the perfect man and as the federal head of the new humanity, which Christ regenerates and calls unto himself. As Robert Shaw has pointed out, Justification is a judicial act of God, and it is not a change of nature, but a change of the sinner's state in relation to the law. Justification is more than the pardon of sin. It is also the accounting and accepting of their persons as righteous, as the Westminster Confession phrases it. Adoption is the change of state for the justified man and is the privilege of all that truly believe in Christ. Galatians 3.26.28 Sanctification is the progressive destruction of the whole body of sin in those who are effectually called and regenerated and have a new heart and a new spirit created within them. This sanctification is accomplished by the Word and by the Spirit indwelling in the believer. The unregenerate sinner is concerned with forgiveness, but not of sins, but rather of the consequences of sins. What the sinner wants dropped is the indictment and the penalty, with freedom granted to continue in his sin. The religious quest of non-Christian religions is the purchase of immunity from the fact of guilt and the threatening forces of retribution. Basic to the success of Julius Caesar was his general offer of clementia, mercy without grace and without regeneration. Caesar's forgiveness extended to his enemies in case after case, so that Cicero had to say, You are the only one, Gaius Caesar, at whose victory no one lost his life except in battle. Caesar could suspend the charges against his enemies, but he could not change their nature. He could not regenerate them, nor himself, and they assassinated him. Every political attempt to forgive without grace leads only to increased lawlessness and chaos, because forgiveness without salvation is simply a subsidy to sin. It is a condemnation of sin which effectually says, go and sin some more. 
but political saviors are more often interested in perpetuating sin than in eliminating it. Sin is an important and major instrument of political power. First of all, in every totalitarian regime and in every socialist order, blackmail is a major instrument of power. People who are amenable to blackmail are amenable to control. As a result, sin is politically encouraged and subsidized. Foreign diplomats are morally compromised in order to control them, and domestic legislators and bureaucrats are surrounded with temptation in order to keep them in continually compromised situation. Sin is thus a basic instrument of political power and control. Second, religion is necessary to political power. For men to be blackmailed, sin must be reprehensible to the public, so that a legislator's immoral acts will then endanger his career. The religion preached must not be Orthodox Christianity, not an uncompromising declaration of the saving power of God and man's glorious liberty in Jesus Christ. The religion of the state must be a religion of moralism. It must make sin socially reprehensible without liberating men from it. The state becomes the major patron of this religion of moralism. Its priests, preachers, and evangelists proclaim the program of the state as part of the gospel and preach moralism to make sin terrible and grace remote. The net effect of moralistic religion is to make sinners feel more guilty and to enhance the power of the state. Third, the power state has a stake in perpetuating sin because guilty men are slaves. A man with a guilty conscience is not a free man, he is in bondage, and his life will reveal his inner slavery. More than a few wives have on occasion tried quietly to push their husbands into adultery in the knowledge that a guilty man is less independent and less confident in making a stand in terms of his rightful authority and responsibility. As Shakespeare's Hamlet observed, conscience does make cowards of us all. The effects of a bad conscience are enslaving. The power state therefore works to promote immorality as though it were a necessary aspect of human liberty and to destroy Christianity in order to eliminate the remedy for sin, the relief and healing for an enslaved conscience. Without the liberating power of Christianity, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, there is no possibility of overthrowing tyranny. The gospel of the tyrant state becomes the assertion that liberty is license to sin, and slavery is the liberty of a moral self-government. In every such state, the courts and schools decree and interpret liberty as freedom from morality. The people are deluded into believing they are a more free people because they now possess a license to fornicate, to commit adultery, indulge in perversions freely, and read pornography. Meanwhile, as the people wallow in this new freedom, the state rapidly extends its powers over the people, over family life, economics, education, business, labor, and agriculture, over the churches, art, science, and all things else. The promulgation of the idea that sexual and moral irresponsibility is liberty is thus the usual and necessary prelude to the destruction of liberty and the rise of statism. The new freedom produces the old slavery. Where there is no forgiveness of sins, there is also the condoning of sins. A sinful society finds itself unwilling to accept the fact of judgment, because it is vulnerable to judgment. As a result, the law is steadily subverted. The death penalty is weakened or dropped. The criminal is so greatly favored in court that the prosecution of crime is handicapped. Criminal law increasingly favors the criminal. Civil law is no better. Some years ago, a study made by the Institute for the Study of Law at John Hopkins showed that in the Supreme Court of New York County, less than 7% of the amount of judgments entered by the court was ever collected by the successful parties. 
The civil courts serve the interests of the state and provide the judges and lawyers with a good living. In the power state, there is little justice for the people in the courts, because the courts are an agency of the state rather than an agency of justice. And because the state is itself in sin, it has a vested interest in sin. Justice is anathema to the social order which has everything to fear from justice and is committed to sinning as an assertion of its independence from God. Where there is no forgiveness of sins, there is bondage to sin. A sinning people may fret against the injustice of their overlords, but they lack the moral courage to make a stand against injustice. For a sinner to war against sin is comparable to warring against himself. As a result, a corrupt people will indulge in complaints against tyranny, but will be impotent to combating it. St. Paul connected the remission of sins with boldness in approaching God. It meant the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10:16-25. If the forgiveness of sins gives boldness in relation to God, how much more in relation to men? The relationship of the unredeemed sinner to God is one of hatred and fear. The sinner is in flight and hiding from God. The hiding of Adam and Eve was in the Garden of Eden, behind fig leaves, and in the refuge of shadows. The hiding place of modern man is in the apostate churches, and in unbelief, but no hiding place avails man against God. The forgiveness of sins restores man into communion with God and into his rightful place as Lord of the earth in Christ. The forgiveness of sins is the liberation of man from God's judgment and from the sentence of his own heart. It is the restoration of man into his calling as man, to be priest, prophet, and king under God. It is the restoration of man into clear and true thinking. For, as Folk Greville wrote, Whence all man's fleshly idols being built, as human wisdom, science, power, and arts, upon the false foundation of his guilt, confusedly do weave within our hearts their own advancement, state, and declination, as things whose beings are but transmutation. When man builds on the false foundation of his guilt, he fails to build with reason, which measures first our own humanity, but seeks instead to attain to divinity and to plant our paradise in dust. Whereas the sinner builds on the false foundation of his guilt, the believer builds on Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, and his forgiveness of sins. In Christ, man is freed from the burden of sin and guilt and from sin and death, and instead of a haunted and guilty man in headlong flight from God, from himself, and from reality, he becomes a child of God and an heir of creation. The forgiveness of sins is man's great charter of liberty. The forgiveness of sins is primarily the act of God. The question of the scribes, who can forgive sins but God only, was not denied by Jesus. Instead, he demonstrated himself to be God incarnate. He spoke of himself as the Son of Man, a title referring to God's Messiah, and performed a miracle in evidence of his divine power. Mark 2, 6-12 Forgiveness of sins is an act of God, and therefore there can be no human forgiveness on humanistic grounds such as love, emotionalism, sentimentalism, or the craving for peace. Forgiveness by man can only be ministerial, i.e. in terms of God's requirements and laws. Acting ministerially, man can forgive, knowing that what he looses is loosed in heaven, and what he binds is bound in heaven, because God is true to himself and to his word. Matthew 16:19, 18:18, John 20:23, 20, 1 Corinthians 5:4, 5, 5, Isaiah 22:22. 22. Man can then move in confidence and power because he moves in the certainty of God's word. 
Because forgiveness is the act of God, it cannot become the act of man in any originating form. Man can forgive or deny forgiveness only as God's word requires it. The initiative in forgiveness is from God. Hence, the persistent attempt by heretical theologians to break down the doctrine of forgiveness by universalism, by insisting that all men's sins are forgiven and that all men are saved. Universalism means that sin is established as man's basic and permanent condition, and that all men are accepted and forgiven in their sin and without judgment and regeneration. Universalism claims to be total love, but it is, if at all, the total love of evil, in that it establishes it in moral legitimacy. Universalism is the total hatred of God's regenerating purpose and plan. Universalism is moral anarchism. The universalistic doctrine of the forgiveness of sins is the establishment of evil and the denial of the significance and reality of sin. Wherever it prevails, tyranny and stagnation take over society. The forgiveness of sins in terms of biblical faith is the framework of both liberty and progress. Biblical forgiveness is judicial and it is exercised in two areas, political and religious. First, in the political realm, forgiveness is exercised through courts of law, and biblical forgiveness in the social or societal relations is contingent upon the fulfillment of God's law. For some crimes, forgiveness is possible only by capital punishment, for others by restitution. Without biblical forgiveness, crimes accumulate and judgment mounts as innocent blood cries out from the ground for vengeance. The crimes then accrue not only to the criminal but to the land as well, so that God's capital punishment is executed on the entire land. A city without justice is a bloody city and under judgment. Ezekiel 24, 6-14 The purpose of civil law is to establish justice, and there is no justice without restitution. The criminal then remains socially unforgiven in God's sight, and the land shares in the criminal's guilt and judgment. The second form of biblical forgiveness is soteriological, i.e. religious with reference to salvation. Our sins are atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are forgiven. For a land to be Christian, both forms of forgiveness must prevail. Without both forms, antinomianism and social decay are inevitable.